Just one thing to, uh, you know, to sort of share with everything, uh, everyone before we do the study, because this has been a real, real answer to prayer for Blinder and I. Um, one of the things, I mean, we tend to have a prayer list of sort of like, you know, it's a mixture of things we need and things we want. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and one of the things that has been on the list has actually been pertaining to sort of like the tape ministry we run because I, I haven't thus far had really the proper equipment to get a really good master tape that I can do off of which the copies come and uh, and some months ago um, I discovered the existence of a machine it's kind of like a one-off it's the only one that's made and it's one of these machines I actually sort of read about it in my sort of like the hi-fi magazine that I get and that what it is it's one of these sort of dubber decks they're called tape dubbers and you can do one tape onto another but it's 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 sort of like a high quality audio file thing as a tape recorder which is quite extraordinary for a double deck and i mean sort of like for instance the deck has got three heads and you can tape monitor and that's getting technical um but that was i thought well yeah you know that is on the prayer list, you know, and I mean, you know, what's, what's, what's 400 pounds to the Lord? Anyway, you know, it kind of got on the prayer list and every now and then we sort of mention it to him, you know, but not very often. And, uh, and yesterday afternoon, our next door neighbours sort of like were talking to Belinda and they said, we got a box here for you. And so I went in and collected the box. And on, on Saturday, uh, what happened during the afternoon we were out, someone came round and said, this is for them next door, could you hang on to it? And it is this machine, you know, it's, it's that, which is great, you know. So there it is, it's plumbed into the system, and, and so now, you know, I can start sort of doing the, the master tapes and things like that a whole lot easier and a lot better quality as well. So that was thrilled. We don't know who it was, kind of a replay. Do you remember I told you how the Lord gave us the computer? <laughs> and that, you know, in a very, very similar way. So, you know, we sort of thank, thank the Lord for that. And that's, that's great, you know. Sort of yesterday afternoon didn't have one and half an hour later did have one. So um, that's, yeah, really, really pleased about that. So great, you know, keep, keep praying. Moving on to the next thing on the list now. <laughs> anyway, let's... Um, no, no, not yet, not yet. <laughs> no, no, we don't, we don't pray for things like Ferraris. That's when Denzel gets his break in acting. <laughs> <laughs> yes, when Denzel's a, 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 a famous... <laughs> oh yeah, no, by then Ferraris will be today's equivalent of a Mini, I expect. <laughs> anyway, let's, um, let's, let's just, just pray before we start. Father, thank you that... You're with us all the time, and thank you, Lord, that, that, that you're providing everything that we need. And, Lord, we, we ask now that you'll speak to us out of your word. Lord, as we continue to, to do this series on what it means to be a church and what being in fellowship with each other means, and Lord, we pray that you'll continue to teach us and... Lord, that the teaching will do something to us. Lord, that it will be changing the way that we live individually and together. So, Father, we do ask now that you'll anoint your word and, and that you'll really bless it to us because, Lord, we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Right, grab your Bibles then. 
And we, is that someone else arriving? Yeah. Just in time, just <laughs> in time, welcome. Yeah, what we, we come to tonight in, in our Church Life series is the second aspect of our work of faith and labour and love towards each other as the family of God. Remember, we've seen the priority that the Bible gives us. That as a church, number one, our priority is to God himself. It's to love God and to serve him. And then we saw that number two, we have the priority of our work of faith and labour of love towards one another as the family of God. And then our third priority is that we have a work of faith and a labour of love towards the world, towards those people who aren't yet in the family of God. And what we did last time is we saw the first aspect of this priority to each other. And we saw that it was to love one another in the family of God. And we saw exactly what that love should be amongst us. And we honed in particularly on the aspect that if we are to love one another as Jesus loves us, then one of the prime things about the love that Jesus has is that he loves us and accepts us just the way we are. And that that is the basis of our love together. That it's only when you've got the emotional security and safety of that love amongst us that it's therefore safe to let God sort our lives out and to sort our sin out. And we saw that that was his job, not our job. It's God who sorts us out. We don't sort each other out. Our responsibility is to provide one another with that environment, that atmosphere of love and acceptance where it is safe to open yourself up so that God can work in us more deeply. So that was what we did last time, loving one another. And tonight, the second aspect of our responsibility, our work of faith as far as each other are concerned, is that we are to be serving one another. Last week, we looked at what I call the relationship level. Tonight, we come on to the practical level. Do you remember when we did our first priority to God, the two aspects, we started off saying how our first responsibility is to love him, and yet on the other hand, to serve him. Love without practical service is a meaningless thing. And so it is that it's fine to say, right, we're going to love one another, accept one another, and stuff like that. But the nitty-gritty boils down to the fact that we are to serve one another in the family of God. And you'll remember that right back in the second study, we were asking, what is fellowship? And we saw that the Greek word was koinonia. And koinonia comes from the Greek word koine, which simply means common. And the idea is to have something in common. And we saw that fellowship, in the broadest possible way, is a sharing together, the sharing of our lives together. But you'll remember as well, that we saw that with that word, when we talk about fellowship or having something in common or sharing our lives together, there is always two aspects of sharing. There's the aspect of giving and there's the aspect of receiving. And you'll remember, we asked ourselves the question that in the Greek word koinonia, is the emphasis in fellowship on what you receive, what you get out of it, or is the emphasis on what you put into it, 
Now, go to Romans 15, verse 26, and we'll remind ourselves at this point of what we discovered then. Romans 15 and verse 26. And this is the verse that has koinonia in it. The Greek word here is koinonia, and it means fellowship. And Romans 15, verse 26, and this is Paul writing to the Romans, he says, For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. And koinonia is in there, it's contribution. That word contribution is koinonia. Go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And verse 13, and Paul writes, Under the test of this service, you will glorify God by your obedience in acknowledging the gospel of Christ and by the generosity of your contribution for them and for all the others. That word contribution, koinonia. And in both instances, Paul is talking about financial giving. So we have the answer to our question. If fellowship, if sharing together has two aspects, giving and receiving, for each one of us, what does the Bible emphasize as far as we as individuals are concerned? Does it emphasize what we receive or does it emphasize what we give? And we're seeing that it emphasizes what we give, all right? Not what we receive. True fellowship is not about what we get out of it. True fellowship in the Lord is about what we as individuals are giving. Now, in those verses, Paul's talking finances, and we'll be back to that a little bit later on. So then, what we're seeing, and remember tonight, we're looking at this whole aspect of serving each other. Therefore, we must remind ourselves of this basic principle about fellowship, that true fellowship between Christians in the Lord is not about what you receive. True fellowship is about what you give. It's not about what you are getting out of being involved in fellowship. It's all about what you are putting in to fellowship. Go to Acts 20. In Acts 20, you have a unique verse in the Bible. And the thing that is unique about this verse is that it's a quote from the earthly ministry of Jesus that isn't recorded in the Gospels, all right? It's something that Jesus said during his ministry on earth, but it wasn't recorded by the people who wrote the Gospels. But the Holy Spirit wanted it in, so he got it in through Paul. And Paul says this. He says, In all things I've shown you that by so toiling one must help the weak. Oh, sorry, uh, Acts 20, verse 35. He says, in all things I have shown you. Notice, Paul's not saying, in all things I have told you. He says, in all things I have shown you. That is leadership. That is true leadership in the law. He's not telling people, it's showing them. And Paul says, remembering the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, if we underline that in our hearts, if we receive that from the Lord, that it is more blessed to give 
than to receive. And if we change our thinking accordingly, then to the extent we do that, we will find ourselves, not only individually, but as a fellowship, growing stronger and stronger in the Lord. That gets the foundation of our fellowship right. The foundation of our salvation as individuals is Jesus and what he has done. Absolutely. But the foundation of being in fellowship with each other is what we give to each other. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Remember, we saw as well that what God is doing in us, and this is why he's put us in the family, he wants to change us. And the best environment to be sorted out in, disciplined by God, is the environment of a loving family atmosphere. And we saw that we're God's sons, we're his children, and that what God is after is like father, like son. He wants us to be like big brother. He's bringing us into conformity to the very image, the very life, of Jesus himself. And this giving is the absolute basis of what being like Jesus is finally all about. Jesus gave and he gave and he gave and he gave and he gave. And he took nothing. He just gave. And indeed it's the principle that in Luke 8 verse 38, don't turn to it, Jesus outlined it again and he simply said this, he said, give and it will be given. If we want to grow in the Lord, individually and in fellowship as a church with each other, then it's going to be the extent that each one of us are involved with, it's settled in our mind that the foundation of our involvement is not what we receive, it's what we give. And you see, the beauty of that is that give and it shall be given. Let no one fear that if they concentrate on what they can give rather than what they need to get out, let no one fear that if you just give, 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 God's going to leave you out. Don't believe that if you give, your needs aren't going to be met. Indeed, our needs are met in giving. That's how God works in us. But we all have problems, absolutely. But I notice there are two types of Christians. There's one thing, well there are loads of things that every Christian has in common. But one of the things that every Christian has in common is this. Incredible problems. Every Christian has incredible problems that they have to struggle with. And sometimes those problems are hard. Those problems are intense. Every Christian has that in common. But I've said there are two types of Christians, and they're these. There's a type of Christian who all the time lives according to his problems, under them. And there's the type of Christian who lives on top of his problems. They've still got problems. When you see people who are kind of, shall, shall we say, in relative victory, when you meet them, they don't lay kind of, sort of like, every burden they've got on you all the time. Can you see? Christians that it's impossible to have a relationship with, just as friends. I mean, every meeting, there they are, you know, sort of going forward. And that people who just become absolutely downtrodden by their problems until that is all they become. All right. Now, when people like that look at Christians who aren't like that and who seem to be in a victory, they assume that, oh, you know, they're, they're really together. Wow, they don't have any problems. No, that's not true. They've got problems, 
But they're living on top of their problems. Can you see? They're not all the time allowing themselves to be obsessed with the problems they've got. They've got the problems, they're dealing with it, but when they're with other people, they're thinking about the other people. They're not just thinking. Now, there's a time, obviously, when we need to get our problems dealt with. Of course there is. But what I'm saying is that the two types of Christians, everyone has the problems. But there's a type of Christian who will always let you know that they have problems. And there's the type of Christian who'll be getting on with serving the Lord and other people and kind of trusting the Lord with the problems. I.e. they don't become problem-oriented Christians, even though they have got as many problems as anyone else has. So can you see, it's in giving, it's in giving that we're going to receive from God and we're going to grow a lot more. And for many problems, the answer in actual fact is, forget about your problem, bless other people in their problems. And I know, I mean, again and again, perhaps when sort of someone has sort of come or phoned up and said, you know, can I come around for a chat or something? And I felt dreadful, sort of sitting there, you know, buried perhaps by a problem I've got. And someone phones up, well, you can't say no. I mean, you know, eat, your pride <laughs> won't let you say no. The easy point is by the time they arrive, you've repented of all that and you're right with God again and you get stuck in with them and, and then when they go, you've forgotten about your problem. You're back in the victory, can you see? Because you've got your mind off of yourself onto other people. So then, this attitude of serving one another. Let's actually see this in more in the teaching of Jesus. Go to Matthew, Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20 and find verse 20. And we read this, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said, What do you want? And she said to him, Command that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and one on your left, in the kingdom. But Jesus said, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to cut the drink, uh, to drink the cup? <laughs> are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said, We are able. And he said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. Now then, what's going on here is that, you know, some of the disciples, they're after the plum position in the kingdom of God. You know, the big boys. This is what they're after. So, you know, two of them, they come forward, the sons of Zebedee, James and John, they come forward, and they've kind of fixed it that their mum <laughs> or I ain't got the courage to do it themselves. They've kind of fixed it that mum is going to get them in a privileged position in the kingdom of God. All right. So she, you know, and Jesus is, is lovely with her. You know, he doesn't sort of, you know, sort of what on earth do you think you're doing? He's lovely with her. But I mean, this is pure pride and, and you know, they just want to be big boys and lord it over people. Now, the other 10 haven't done it. Does that make them any better? No, it doesn't. It says they were indignant. They wished they could have done it. I thought, oh, drat, why didn't we think of that? You know how annoying it is when you've got a prime sin lined up and someone beats you to it? All right, you don't commit that sin that they've done, but you get indignant about it. I mean, i.e., all the disciples are in exactly the same, they're all in the same boat in this regard. Now, listen to what Jesus says. He says, look, he said Jesus called them to him and says, look, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. 
and their great men exercise authority. I mean, you see Jesus, he's kind of, you know, he's being facetious. He says, and they're great men, all the big boys, you know, this is how Jesus is going. But he says, it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of God came not to be served, but to serve. And here we have Jesus saying, look, if you really want to get on in the kingdom, if you really want to grow in the Lord, if you really want to move into the authority that God has given us in Jesus, then we do so by laying our lives down and serving. Not being up front, it's getting down at the bottom and serving. Go over to Luke. Luke's account of uh, much the same situation, Luke 22. And verse 24. <coughs> it's not Luke 22. Ah, oh, it's for, yeah, sorry, it's Luke 22, verse 24. A dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. I mean, the disciples, and this is right at the end of the ministry of Jesus, they've been with Jesus nearly three and a half years now. They're sitting down and they have an argument. And do you know what the argument is? It's who's the greatest? Who's the best Christian? Who's the most spiritual? Who's the most charismatic? Who is he? And here they are, notching up demons. Oh, but I cast uh, ten out of them. You see, swapping stories. Oh, well, you wait till you hear what the Lord did for me last week. Can you see? And here they are, arguing away as to who is the greatest, i.e., who's the top dog that everyone else is supposed to tip their cap to. Now, look at what Jesus says to them. He said, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest. And you see, the thing is that, especially in the ancient world, age brought respect with it. Now, that, that should be true today. It isn't today, but it should be. So what Jesus says, he says, look, you know, if you want to really be respected then get down in a position that doesn't give you any respect. Can you see? Because what we want is respect from God, not each other. Primarily, we want respect from God. And then he says, and the leader as one who serves. For which is the greater, one who sits at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who sits at table? Now, Jesus is here, the picture he's using is of a kind of a rich gentleman Jew at his table with the butler, all right? And Jesus says, but I am among you as one who serves. I, in Jesus' relationship with us, is he at the table or is he the butler? He's the butler. And Jesus is saying, right, now that is the position that you are to take in regards to each other, the place of the servant. And that the attitude of fellowship and the attitude without which we can never really be in fellowship. You can go through the motions, but the true attitude of Christian fellowship is the humility of servanthood. And unless as individuals we come with that, 
then we're not really participating in true fellowship. It's the attitude of the servant. Go to Philippians. Because again and again and again, remember last time, we were seeing that we are to love each other with the same love that Jesus loves us with. Remember, Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you. So always looking at Jesus is the example. Philippians chapter 2, we'll start off at verse, start reading from verse 1. Paul says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any incentive of love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now, Paul says, right, I want you to all share in one mind. And he then goes on to tell them what that mind is. He says, do nothing from selfishness or conceit. Selfishness puts me first, which is the opposite of putting someone else first. Can you see? And then he says, or conceit. Conceit wants people to look at us and say, oh, isn't, isn't he good? Oh, isn't he my, oh, what a, what a ministry. Can you say? No, Paul says nothing from that. He says, but in humility, count others better than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which you have in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. And what Paul's talking about here, he says that originally, the second person of the Trinity, obviously, was in the form of God. Absolute majesty, absolute power, total, infinite everything, all right? But because of the attitude that he had, he was, you know, he didn't hang on to that. He became a man. Let that go and became a mere man, just like us, all right? but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now, that's, that's a come down. God becoming a man, that's a come down, but we're not finished yet. And he says, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death. God died in Jesus. Even more of a come down, but Paul says, even death on the cross. I mean, not even a glorious death. There was no glory to be seen at the death of Jesus, quite the opposite. God's glory was revealed for those who had eyes to see it more wonderfully on the cross than anywhere else. But those looking on didn't have the eyes to see it, they missed it. It was a shameful death. It was the death of common criminals, it was the death of terrorists, it was the death of the scum that Rome wanted to dispose of. But therefore... God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. And we see here Jesus giving up everything of himself and coming, and regardless of the humiliation that he went through, he took the form of a servant amongst us and did whatever was needed in order for us to come into the blessing that God wanted us to have. And that what we've got to see tonight is this that it is in practical service, one to another, that we prove ourselves to each other and take our place in the fellowship. I'm going to say that again. It's very important to know how to take your place in the fellowship. I mean, you know, you can go to conferences, can't you? You know, discover your gift. 
find your ministry. And people saying, oh, what, what part have I got to play? You know, I, what's, what's my purpose in it, all right? Now, that's taking your place in a fellowship from completely the wrong angle. It's in practical service that we prove ourselves to each other. And it's in practical service that we take our place in the fellowship, not in the upfront stuff. We take our place in the fellowship, we prove ourselves to each other in the common round of practical service over months and over years. We are not going to allow nine-day wonders in this fellowship, ministry or anything else. Because we prove ourselves to each other over months and over years. And that let no one think that they can come into this fellowship and within a few weeks kind of, you know, rise up to be some great leader or to become the oracle of God in our midst. No, 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 it doesn't work like that at all. It's by practical service. That's how people are to come to serve those of us who are also in the fellowship. That is how we will discover the truly committed amongst us. Those whose hearts are 100% in what God is doing amongst us because they have been drawn by God into us. We won't know those people by their visions, we won't know those people by their prophecies, we won't know those people by their ministries. We will know those of us who are truly of us by practical service one to another. Go to John 13. John 13, and first of all the first five verses. <clears throat> Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. We saw that last week. And during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper, laid aside his garments and girded himself with a towel. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Go down into verse 12. And when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. Truly I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. But if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Notice again, not blessed if you know them, blessed if you do them. All right. Now, the thing about the foot washing is this. We've covered this before. But in the ancient world, because they, they wore sandals, they didn't have shocks, socks, shocks. They didn't have socks and enclosed shoes like we do today. They wore sandals. 
And say they were going out somewhere for a posh meal, all right? They'd spruce themselves up, and as they left their house to go to where the meal is, they'd be absolutely spick and span. Now, when they got to where they were going, they would still be spick and span, except for their feet. Their feet have got disgusting and sweaty and dirty and horrible and dusty and muddy on the way. So therefore, you can't eat a meal with dirty feet. Now, it's just not done, is it? So what happened was that when guests came into the house, the household servant would wash their feet for them. It was the job of the servant. And what Jesus was doing was simply taking that action and what it symbolised, and he did it to the disciples. And he says, you must do this as well. And that what Jesus was saying is this is what you must do for one another in fellowship with each other. You must make sure that you are serving each other. And the important thing is this, that foot washing in those days met an actual practical need. Can you see? It boiled down to meeting practical needs. Now, you see, the thing is that today foot washing isn't needed, not in quite the same way. Therefore, it's not relevant to us. But you see, the thing is, other things are. I mean, foot washing then was the perfect symbol of servanthood. Now, we don't need to wash each other's feet. But there are other things that we do need to do for each other. And that is what it is all about. Now, notice as well that this foot washing happens when? It happens directly after the Last Supper. What was the Last Supper? The Last Supper was the last Passover meal, closing the Old Testament era, and the first church love feast. And during that, Jesus said, make sure that you're washing each other's feet. Make sure that you're serving each other. So therefore, if our eating together, if our love feast, if us partaking of the Lord's Supper as a church together, if that is going to have any meaning at all, and remember, it's an outward sign of our fellowship together because of our fellowship individually with Jesus. If that fellowship is to have any meaning to it, it's got to be a serving relationship with each other. Now, obviously, one could go through, you know, long lists of the kind of things that we can do to be serving each other. I'm just going to chuck out a few. Decorating. I mean, it's good. Sometimes someone needs help. I mean, it's like, for instance, on Saturday, a load of us are bundling over to John's place. And that is great. That is absolutely right. Or maybe shopping. Maybe there are times when someone's not, not too good and they need a bit of help or they're going through a rough time. Do their shopping for them. Uh, maybe, you know, sort of like someone just needs their car looked at by someone who, who knows what they're doing. In fact, sort of Bella and Robert's car has already had the, the bonnet up tonight and Jonathan's head <laughs> stuck in it. A uh, half hour before he came, my head was stuck in it. But only after Belinda found the bonnet release, because I, I couldn't even open the bonnet. And I was supposed to be checking two things, the water and the oil. Well, I mean, I gave up on the water, and I didn't get very far on the oil, because I couldn't find the blooming dipstick for it. So, so I mean, you know, I, I'm not very... But I tried. That's the main thing. But can you see, maybe someone needs their car looked at by someone who knows what they're doing. What it boils down to is this. Whatever. That's what it boils down to. Whatever. That we can be serving one another. 
However, having said that, I want to chuck this in as well. And it's tremendously important. I don't foresee this happening, but I've got to chuck it in in case it ever does. And it's quite simply this. We must always ensure that this doesn't lead to any abuse of each other. For instance, having said what we've said, each one of us should now be asking ourselves what we can do for someone else. We shouldn't be sitting there working out all the list of things that we want doing. <laughs> now, can you see what I mean? There is the potential for abuse. And when I talk about this really serving each other and giving up time to help each other practically when there's a need, I am not talking about cheap labour, in fact free labour, for the well-off or for the lazy. Can you see what I'm getting at? I mean, for instance, there are certain, you know, people who might think, my goodness, I'll never have to spend another penny on house maintenance in my life. Now, if you can't afford it, you shouldn't have to. But obviously, if you can afford it, can you see? So we're not talking about free labour or anything like that. Neither are we talking about the excuse to get other people in doing things that we could do, but we're too blooming lazy to do. We're not talking about that either. This is not an excuse to put on people in an unreasonable way. Now, can you see that balancing point? It's not relevant in the moment, at the moment. I hope this never will happen. Probably it never will. But nevertheless, we've got to cover that. We've got to serve each other. But, I mean, we're, we're going to make sure that this never leads to any kind of exploitation. And it's got to be said as well that if anyone does end up exploiting people, if anyone here does end up putting on other people's love and generosity so that those people end up being almost used like a, a chivvy, or something, then because of our responsibility of love, the innocent will be protected. We are not going to let anyone be exploited in this fellowship, and we will prevent that, obviously, by correcting the, anyone who is doing the exploiting. Can you see that? So, therefore, everyone is going to be protected in this. It's vital that we are serving each other, but this does not mean that we're going to become an easy touch for people who want cheap labour or anything like that. This is the response to, to genuine needs and because of our love for each other. <coughs> Let me just sort of chuck in sort of like other types of service. There's, there's that sort, the actual getting your hands dirty sort, decorating, fixing someone's car, painting or whatever. But there are other types of service as well that we've got to provide for each other if we can. For instance, do you need <coughs> to be shown how to budget wisely. Uh, I mean, can you see, some Christians have never been taught how to budget, and therefore, it doesn't matter how much money they've got, they've never got any money. Do you see what I mean? And I've had people who have come to me, and they've said, I know how much I'm earning, but it's gone, and I don't even know where it's gone. Help! And so, we teach them how to budget, how to do their accounts. We're not talking about... I mean, you know, let me make this very clear. We're not talking about taking over people's accounts and telling them what they can or can't do with their money. But, for instance, if someone doesn't know how to be responsible with organising their finances, then what do you do about that? Find someone in the fellowship who does know and ask them to teach you. What a lovely way to serve somebody. 
Uh, I mean, for instance, sort of housewives. Uh, there are many, many people, and, and, and again, this is coming out of the fact that Belinda and I spend time with them. You know, sort of young people perhaps who've got married and older people as well, and they haven't the foggiest idea how to do the shopping. And that they've got their budget for how much they've got to live on for that week. They kind of pop down the corner shop, and they come back with nothing for it. And so what Belinda and I do, if they ask, you know, we say, right, okay, down to Sainsbury's or Tesco's or something like that, with a carefully thought out list of long-term budgeting, and they're coming back with three times as much. And that's the equivalent of giving them 30 quid a week. Can you see? If you don't know how to shop wisely, economically, ask someone who does. Can you see in all these things, if there's something that we're not too good at, and there's someone in the fellowship who is okay at it, get them to teach you. What practical service? Are the kids too much sometimes? Well, get help with them. I'm not saying ask us to take over the discipline of the kids, but I'm saying if you need to get out for a night, get someone in to babysit. Or if you say, I just can't handle this situation with the children, get some help and advice. No problem. Can you see the real practical ways of serving each other? And let me add this. I'm not saying to get this help just from the elders either. Not saying that in the slightest. It's whoever you think would be best. Can you see? So if you need to learn someone and there's someone in the fellowship, you think, well, I, they could teach me. I could trust them. Fine, okay, you go to them. doesn't matter who they are. If they're able to do it, you go to them and get them to teach you. But again, back to the abuse thing. If you are a potential helper in one of these things, only go into a situation if you're asked. I mean, it's like if you see someone who is not very good with their money, you have no right to dive in and sort them out. This has got to be on invitation. Can you see what I mean? So any kind of interfering would be an abuse. And of course, the abuse is what we must make sure never happens. Now, the other area that we've got to deal with, and we can't deal with this thing about serving each other without covering this. And it's the fact that we have a responsibility to serve, if need be, to serve and help each other financially. Go to Deuteronomy, because I, I want to just show you, very, give you an idea of kind of the way God has built this in to the scriptures, uh, you know, and the kind of what the Lord's heart is on this. God doesn't like poverty. He'll put you through it for a while if he thinks it'll do you good. Yes, but he doesn't like it. All right. Deuteronomy. <laughs> Neither do I. <laughs> right, okay, yeah. Deuteronomy 15. Let's just start reading from verse 7. And these are the rules, these are the laws of the land. This was for Israel, how to conduct itself socially as a nation. If there is among you a poor man, one of your brethren, in any of your towns within your land which the Lord your God gives you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take heed lest there be a base thought in your heart and you say the seventh year, the year of release is near. Now what that's meaning is that on the sev every seventh year in Israel, all debts were freed. All right. So if someone owes you something, 
if that seventh year came, they didn't owe it to you anymore. So he's saying, look, don't get generous two months. <laughs> you see. Okay. He said, you shall give to him freely and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. Go over into chapter 24. Chapter 24, verse 19. When you reap your harvest in your field and have forgotten a sheaf, you shall not go back to get it. For it's for the sojourner, that's the... Uh, foreigner who comes in, the fatherless and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over the boughs again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow. When you gather the grapes, you shall not glean it afterwards, for it so shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow. What he's saying here, that when they harvested, say they collected the sheaves in from the field, they got one crack at it. If there was stuff left that they couldn't get in on that day, it had to stay there. And it was so that the people who didn't have enough could go and get it. When they beat their trees to get the fruit off, they had one crack per tree. And at the end of it, all the stuff that hadn't fallen off, that had to stay. That was for the poor. Can you see? When they collected everything, the grapes from the vine, they got one crack at the vine. And what was left was for the poor. Can you see? The whole... It was... God's built-in social security system for the poor in Israel. God doesn't like the poor, and he was ap he, no, sorry, he doesn't <laughs> Oh, sorry, oh, I shall say this again. Oh, dear. I must, must stop reading these books about Maggie. Uh, no, um, God doesn't like people being poor. And so he built into their social system the way that those who had enough were providing for those who didn't. Alright, now then, let's have a look at the New Testament system in the church. And if you go to Acts chapter 2, we've seen kind of the Old Testament arrangement. Let's see what God's plan is for the church. Acts chapter 2 and verse 44. Where we read this. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they sold their possessions and goods and distributed them to all as any had need. Right? Wow. Go over to chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 34. There was not a needy person among them. Remember, God doesn't like people being poor. Now, let me say as well, we're not classing someone who's poor because they ain't got a colour telly. We're talking about the necessities of life. All right. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and distribution was made to each as any had need. Now you'll remember when we were looking earlier on in this series at this in greater detail, we saw that it wasn't communism. <laughs> You know, it's not the, relinqu the, the relinquishment of private property. God is into private property. And all these selling the houses and fields. They weren't living like a commune. It was selling excess houses and fields. And it was totally free will. They were under no compulsion to do it whatsoever. But my goodness, the generosity of their hearts was absolutely amazing. Can you see the way that God wanted this financial and material sharing and how in the New Testament church it happened? Go over into Galatians 2. 
And we want the bit where Paul is referring to the visit he made, the first visit to the apostles in Jerusalem. He's reporting on what happened there. And in verse 10, he said only, they would have us remember the poor, which very thing I was eager to do. So when Paul went to see the other apostles, and they accepted that he was an apostle, the one thing they, they wanted to make sure, but Paul, make sure you don't forget the poor. And Paul said, but that was already in my heart anyway. Can you see? And that we've seen already tonight that koinonia, fellowship, actually gets translated in the Bible as financial contribution. And can you see that finally, giving and sharing, if it doesn't somewhere along the line boil down to giving money, or giving away things that your money has bought, if it doesn't somewhere boil down to that, then it's not giving in the truly biblical sense of the word. Now, I said earlier on in the tape that we're going to cover things that we've covered before in other series. And I'm not going to repeat myself, because that would be a waste of time, because you can get the, the, the tapes. But I want to urge you, those who haven't heard it, get the tapes, is tithing scriptural? All right. I'm not going to go over it here, but get those tapes, they're important. But all I will say is this, that we have a responsibility to help each other financially, but remember the rule for giving as a church is this, it is strictly free will offering. No tithing, no set percentages, no compulsion, nothing like that at all. You're giving is free will offering. It is up to you before the Lord to decide. And we saw that the rule was this. You don't have to give, but we ought to give. Can you see? We don't have to, and money given through gritted teeth, God really doesn't want. Keep it. If you love it that much, God would have you keep it. All right. We don't have to give, but we ought to give. Go over to James, the epistle of James. James and chapter 2. And in verse 15. James says, If a brother or sister is ill-clad and in lack of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed, be filled, Bless your brother. God's richest blessing on you. <laughs> May he bless this involuntary fast to you. Yeah. Without giving them the things needed for the body, what does it profit? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. Now, that's what the Bible says. You don't have to give, but you ought to give. Go into 1 John. 1 John 3, verse 16, we saw this verse last time, but now we're going to read it in conjunction with verse 17, which will bring out the full import of it. 1 John 3, 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. We saw that last week. But what does it boil down to, verse 17? But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Can you see? You don't have to give, but you ought to give. 
To have God's love in your heart and not be giving is a contradictory statement. All right, simple as that. And he says, little children, let us not love in word or speech, but in deed and in truth. Love is more than words. Words are cheap. Words are, they can gush out in rivers. It's the practical serving of one another which actually shows whether love is in our hearts or not. Go over into 1 Timothy. I've made the statement, categorically, that God doesn't like people being poor. Therefore, God likes people to prosper. And I mean, there are some people that God actually, actually gives riches to. You must never strike this kind of idea that it's wrong to be rich. It is not wrong to be rich. I've covered this before on the, the thing is tithing scriptural. And we saw there, there is nothing wrong with being rich, but it is wrong to want to be rich. Now, can you see that difference? But God wants to prosper us. He wants to prosper all of us. He wants us all to have enough and more to spare. But there are some, on top of that, that God will actually give riches to. But whether it's increased prosperity or riches, we need to see the rules for that. And in 1 Timothy 6, verse 17, we get the rules. And, uh, sorry, 1 Timothy 5. No, 1 Timothy 6, sorry, verse 17. Got it right at last, verse 17. As for the rich in this world, charge them not to be haughty. Yeah, because, I mean, in a funny kind of, in the world, if you're rich, that impresses people. Which is really odd, if you think about it. It does. Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on uncertain riches, but on, jo on God, who richly furnishes us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good deeds, liberal and generous, thus laying up for themselves a good foundation for the future, that they may take hold of the life which is life indeed. So what Paul says here, he doesn't say it's wrong to prosper. No, it's not wrong to prosper. But what he says, the more we prosper, then the more generous we ought to be becoming in our giving. All right. Now then, one of the things that, that we will very soon be introducing into the fellowship, because remember, we're a baby church, we've only been a church as such and functioning as a church uh, for under a year, but bit by bit as the Lord leads, we're actually going to be coming into the fullness of all the things that should be going on in a church. And very, very soon now, and in fact I'm merely waiting for Robert to get out of hospital and to be back amongst us, but, but before too long we are actually going to start having a fellowship general fund. And that what we're going to do is, I mean, I'm sure it will be a box outside, that seems the most convenient way to do it. There will be a box outside, a fellowship general fund, and that will be there quite simply so people can put their whack in. That's what it will be there for. And then you see the point is, then there's going to be a supply of money that can be drawn upon to meet needs that arise. How can you say? So that if, I mean, the times when someone has been in a situation, and if only I could have got hold of some money. You see what I mean? I mean, when Blinder and I literally haven't had any money to give them, it would have been marvellous if there'd been a fellowship fund. And we could have drawn on that, can you see? And we need to build that up. And remember, with your money, and I remember this with my money, it's not our money, it's the Lord's money. And when we understand that, that it's God's money, you can be generous, you can start chucking it around. 
I mean, it's the, I love spending other people's money. I have never had any problem with that. Isn't it easy to spend other people's money? And when you realise that your money isn't yours, it's God's, isn't it easy to spend it on people? No problem whatsoever. So we need, you know, to start building up this fund. All right. And it's going to be there for whatever is needed. All right. Now, I'm not going to dodge this next bit. It's a slight embarrassment to me, but I'm not going to dodge it because it's biblical. For the sake of teaching, we can't dodge it. That in the Bible, the giving that was done in the churches was always to two areas. The first area is that the giving was to the poor. The giving was there to meet the needs of the fellowship. Anyone who had needs that came up, the giving in the fellowship, the money or everything was there so that their needs could be met. That was the first area. And the second one, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Because, of course, the second area is that the money needs to go to any in the church who are actually working full-time for the church. 1 Timothy 5, verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honour, especially those who labour in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain, and the labourer deserves his wages. Now there, when Paul says this, the labourer deserves his wages, he's actually quoting the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 10 and verse 7. That was 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 17 down to verse 19. Did I tell you Corinthians? Sorry, 1 Timothy. I'll read it again. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honour, especially those who labour in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain, and the labourer deserves his wages. And there... Paul is actually quoting the words of Jesus in Luke 10 and verse 7. Go over to Galatians chapter 6. Because we've seen very clearly that money needs to be given into a fund in the church to be distributed amongst those who are in need. And we're seeing now that the second area is that the money needs to go to those who actually work full-time in service in the church. And in Galatians 6 verse 6, we read this. Paul says, <clears throat> Let him who is taught the word share all good things with him who teaches. Um, I'm a bit embarrassed by that, but nevertheless, it's, it's got to say. Look, I have lived by faith in the ministry now for well over ten years. All right. I have never ever charged for anything. I have never asked for money, I have never taken collections, and I have never ever arranged for collections to be taken up for me, never. Uh, the box in the hall with love gift for Beresford is there because some while ago, people from the fellowship asked if it could be there, all right. Um, you know, so, so I don't, want you to, you know, this isn't an appeal for money, all right, in that sense. But I just want to get this straight from the Bible so we do understand. So, in actual fact, before too long, there will be two 
boxes out there. And obviously, Robert and Bella serve the church full time. But as Robert himself would say, you know, immediately he's retired and financially he's taken care of. So that, that's no problem. But before too long, there'll be two boxes there. And that as a fellowship, this area amongst us needs to start to operate. Remember, as we grow more and more into the fullness of what a church is, then we need to be practicing all these things. And remember as well that just in being a church, expenses are occurred, you see. Now, those expenses so far have been borne. You know, the fellowship hasn't had to bear those expenses. But from now on, the general fund will be there, obviously, to pay for the general expenses that being a fellowship, being a church, incurs. So we're going to be starting to operate that very, very soon. Now, having said this, we don't want a mad flurry of giving money. That is not what we want. We don't suddenly want people to think, oh, 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 you know, and out come the wallets. And No, we don't want anyone to respond in the same way that you would if you were at one of these high-pressure meetings. No. What I'm asking is that everyone prays about it. If necessary, say, right, I'm going to take six weeks and I'm going to pray about it. Can you see? So that you get this area sorted out with the Lord. Now, one or two other things in regards to this that we've got to ask. Therefore, based on what I've said tonight, if this is your church, if you consider that you are part of this church as opposed to any other, if you're in that category, are you therefore free to only give money here to your church? Now, obviously, the answer is no. Of course not. You are free to give wherever you feel it's right. But this has to be said, and it will make sense. By and large, those of us who are part of this church, any giving that we're doing elsewhere ought not to be instead of our giving into this church to each other. Can you see what I'm saying there? It is right, or we are not saying that one is bound to only give to one's own church. That would be silly. But what we are saying is that any giving done elsewhere ought not to be instead of our giving to each other. Now, there are, of course, going to be one-off situations when the Lord would have you give somewhere, and quite frankly, that's your giving done maybe for quite a while. No problem with that. You know, that maybe the Lord has you give somewhere, and then you haven't got anything to give here for a few weeks or whatever. No problem with that. There are going to be one-offs where you give somewhere else, and that doesn't leave anything for a while for here. But what we're saying is... By and large, our giving, our regular giving, is obviously going to be into this fellowship, if so be, we believe that God has placed us in it. And this must be said as well. To come here to this fellowship and to receive what is spiritually needed in your life here, and then to do your giving to another church that you go to is wrong. I'm going to say that again. To come and receive what you need spiritually here in this fellowship, and yet to be giving to another church you go to is wrong. Now, I want to explain that. Because there's a make-your-mind-up time always in things like this. If... 
the other church you go to is providing you with what you need as a Christian, what on earth are you doing here? <laughs> is he? You wouldn't need to be here, would you? Therefore, what you need as a Christian is received here. I'm not talking now to visitors. I'm not talking to visitors now. But for people who regularly come here, yet regularly go to another church, obviously, you receive what you need spiritually here, or you wouldn't be here. You'd be at your own church. You wouldn't need us to top it up. All right. So then, therefore, your church really is here. Now, here's the point. This fellowship would therefore be really where your giving ought to be going to. And it's for this reason. How can you receive your spiritual and physical benefits from this family of God whilst doing nothing for the needy people in it? Can you see what a travesty that is? To be receiving what you need from other people in a fellowship and yet doing all your giving your practical service to another fellowship. Can you see what a mockery that is? And remember, if the main thrust of fellowship is giving, then any idea of going to a fellowship purely to receive and yet do your giving <coughs> elsewhere becomes an absolute... It's, it's just crazy. Can you see that? So this is why, obviously, it's absolutely right that for someone who is in their own heart convinced that they belong in a fellowship, be it this one or any other, the giving ought to be into the fellowship that you, in your heart, belong to in the Holy Spirit. Can you see? But to do all your giving elsewhere is quite simply not fair on the fellowship that you are receiving everything for. And think about it as well. Think of some of the things that your money is financing in your giving to the other churches. Think of what Christians in the Anglican church, they're financing practicing homosexual vicars. They're financing them. They're making that abomination to God a reality. You're paying, you are helping in the upkeep of things that are abominable to God. You are paying for the upkeep of people like the Bishop of Durham who are false prophets. You are contributing to the upkeep of people like John Habgood, who is a false prophet. Can you see? It's tremendously important that in our hearts we, we, we kind of get this financial giving sorted out. But I boil down quite simply to this. If you belong in this family, if you know in your heart, not here because someone's told you to be here, but here because you want to be here, if you are therefore part of this family, how can you give to things outside and ignore the needs in your family here? Charity begins at home. It would be terribly wrong, for instance, if someone was giving money into this fellowship to such an extent that they weren't caring for their own family. That would be wrong because your number one priority is not this fellowship. It's your family. That is number one priority. So someone who was giving so much to their church that they weren't looking after their family, that is not great love for God. That is showing that there's not enough love in their hearts for their family. So in the same way, if you come along to this fellowship, 
to come to this family of God and yet do all your giving elsewhere. Can you see? That is not playing your part and looking after your family of God in the church in the way that you should. Charity begins at home. So therefore, if you're part of this church, if all your giving is to things that are nothing to do with this fellowship, well, then charity for you is not starting at home. Can you see? You're meeting the needs of people you can't see and ignoring the needs of people who you say you're in fellowship with week by week. Now, that would be a wrong situation. So we need to have that clear in our minds. But let's remember as well that all giving that we do whether it be financial, whether it be giving our time, whether it be mending someone's car in the fellowship, remember that all serving and giving has got to come out of the fact that we have given ourselves to each other. Can you see? You can give things to people whilst holding yourself back. Now, we covered this earlier in the series, but we need to remind ourselves of it. That is not true fellowship. That is not true love. Go to Galatians. Galatians chapter 2. Remember, we saw last time, our love for each other must be the same love that Jesus has for us. So Jesus is our example. And in Galatians 2.20, and right at the end of the verse... Paul says, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus will give us things. But the real point is that Jesus gave us himself. Can you see that? Go to Ephesians 5. When Paul talks about marriage, Ephesians 5 verse 25, he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It wasn't that Jesus gave up things for us. Jesus gave up himself. It wasn't the things he gave that were the key to it. The key to it was that everything he gave came out of the fact that he gave himself to us. Go over into Titus. Chapter 2 and verse 14. And Paul says, speaking about Jesus, he says, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all iniquity. Now that's the point. Jesus gave himself to us. Now then, that means that our giving must come out of the fact that we're giving ourselves to each other. Can you see? I could give you money while still holding myself back from you. That is not genuine love. Go to 1 Corinthians 13. This will help you to understand uh, what some people find a peculiar thing that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. Because in verses 4 through to the end of the chapter, Paul defines what love is. But in chapters, uh, in verse 1 through to 3, he's defining what love isn't necessarily. And in verse 3, he says, if I give away all I have, but have not love, I gain nothing. Can you see? Because love is not showing itself in what you give. 
Love is showing yourself in that you're giving that because you've given yourself. Can you see? So, if you need money and I give you money, I mean, yeah, one way or the other, that's going to help you. But it's only beautiful before God if I give you that money because I've given myself to you. Can you see? You're getting that money because it's in my stewardship from God, but I am given to you. Can you see? Potentially everything I have is yours. And if the Lord says give that, it's yours. Can you see? Because the giving of things, time, money, must come out of the fact that we have truly given ourselves to each other. Go to 1 Thessalonians. Let's actually see where Paul says this. The absolute basis of fellowship together. And in 1 Thessalonians in chapter 2, and in verse 8, and listen to what he says. He says, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. Paul's writing to them, and he says, look, when we came to you, it wasn't that we gave you the gospel, it wasn't that we gave you the money you need, it wasn't that we gave you our time. He says, we gave ourselves to you. And because they gave themselves, everything else naturally followed. Can you see? If you got me, you got my money if you need it. Can you see how that works? This is what Paul's saying. Not so much that we gave you things, we gave you ourselves. Therefore, it goes without saying that what's ours is yours if you need it. And the Lord's saying, you share that with them. Go over into 2 Corinthians. See exactly the same thing. We've seen Paul saying how he did it for a church. And in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1 to 5, he says, We want you to know, brethren, about the grace of God which has been shown in the churches of Macedonia. And this is talking about giving money to a poor church. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of liberality on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own free will, no tithing in the New Testament church, of their own free will, begging us earnestly for the favour of taking part in the relief of the saints. The, these guys, I mean, it's not that their leaders are having a job getting money out of them. They're saying, we want to give money, we want to give money. That was the love and sharing in the hearts of the people there. And he says, and this, not as we expected, but first they gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. The generosity came out of the fact that they gave themselves. But if you just give money, I could meet you in need and think, oh, oh yeah, oh, hey, there you are. There you are, and sort of write you out a check. And it, it can be no love in it whatsoever, ever, because I'm holding myself back. Giving comes out of the fact that we've given ourselves to each other. Go to Galatians. Just end with this. I'm coming to the end, then we'll take the question. Let's just, just bring this to a close with Galatians and chapter 6. And remember, we saw our list of priorities to the Lord first, then to each other as a church, and then to the world. And in Galatians 6 verse 10, look what Paul writes. He says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all men, there's the world, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. That is our second priority. First, to God. 
Number one, nothing comes before that. The second priority is to each other as a church. It's to love each other, to accept each other as we are, to provide that environment of love, and then, in doing that, to serve each other in practical ways at all. And that next time, we move on to our third priority, which is our work of faith and labour of love towards the world, towards unbelievers. And next time we deal with the first of the two aspects concerning that. So we will end there. And take the question that, that was raised. It's quite a simple one, really. Um, virtually all my Christian life, I've been very disturbed and concerned about general Christian fear on giving. Um, particularly to those um, brothers and sisters who are more materially well off. This particular verse here in John that says, if anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? It's absolutely true. You see it all the time. What would you consider? I think the trouble is so many Christians have a different version of this word need. Mm. Where perhaps, Professor, would you place this? What would you define as a need as opposed to a desire, perhaps? Yeah, yeah, right. It's a tricky one, I know. I'm maybe yeah. going to answer it now, but I mean, just... Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, we touched on it when I said earlier that this doesn't mean that someone's poor just because they haven't got a colour telly, all right? <clears throat> biblically, when we're defining someone who is biblically poor, who must be given what they need, all right, there are three fundamental things that come out throughout the Bible, in the Old Testament and the New Testament as well. And when I tell them what you are, you'll have spotted them in the verses that we've read. The first one is a roof over their head. Not necessarily everyone owning their own home, although God's very pleased with that, he likes that. But that everyone ought to have a roof over their head. Certainly, a homeless Christian is a biblical, you know, contradiction in terms all right now that doesn't mean necessarily that everyone has got to you know like if someone is homeless that you say right you come and live with me and 20 years later they're still there what it means is you take them in and you provide them with a home until they've got themselves on their own feet and can get their own can you see but the bare minimum is that everyone ought to have a roof over their head the second one and they go together is enough food to eat and enough clothes to wear. Now, they are the basic needs of life. And we must always ensure that no one amongst us is in that state. Now, for instance, at the moment, no one is. But who knows, you know, the next tramp that God is going to bring off the streets. But you see, the thing is, there's another sense as well, in which for most churches, and certainly for this one, homelessness, not enough to eat, um, and uh, kind of not enough, uh, and not you know, having no clothes to wear. They aren't practical problems that we're going to meet very often. So therefore, theoretically, one could say, oh, well, no one's in that need, let's have nothing to give whatsoever. But of course that wouldn't be true, because poverty is also a relative thing. Can you see? And sometimes there are just times when people need money for whatever reason. I've, I've known Christians who, I mean, they certainly, they don't qualify for being poor in the biblical sense. They've got a roof over their head, they've got enough food to eat, they've got clothes to wear. But nevertheless, sometimes people come to a point in their lives where they really do need some money. Can you see? Perhaps something comes up, or whatever. 
And the, the main thing about this is all the time it's being led by the Holy Spirit. This is the point. Um, and, I mean, there might be times when someone, who, shall we say, would appear to all and sundry to be quite well off, and yet God might say, I need some money from the fellowship to be channeled to them. They need it. Can you see? Uh, so certainly, if someone comes in at real rock bottom, you don't even have to pray about that. You do it. You provide them with their needs. All right. But that's not going to happen very often. But nevertheless, we're not going to build up a fellowship fund just so it can sit there earning interest. Believe me, that is money that God wants used amongst us. But there's no doubt the Lord will lead in where that money needs to go at any one time. So it's a question of having the money there and the generosity there, and then as the Lord leads, getting it to people um, as they as they need it. I mean, I mean, sort of say we had a marriage in the fellowship. I mean, sort of say you had a, I mean, some young couples, they get married and they've got everything. I mean, they've got more before they get married than Blinge and I have, having been married for years, all right? Now, they don't need any. I mean, buying presents, yeah, but they don't need any help, do they? Fine, no problem. But sometimes other people in the fellowship get married and they've got nothing. Well, wouldn't it be lovely, you know, say, for instance, you know, for the fellowship to buy them a washing machine or something like that. Can you see? The point is that we're looking to the Lord to keep the supply of money coming in and showing us where it ought to be going out as well. So, you know, it's just a question of, of sort of being, you know, sort of being open. Unemployment. I mean, we've had, I mean, sort of like with one or two people in this fellowship, even over the last months, how I've longed for there to be a fellowship fund. Because they've been unemployed. They could have had a holiday. Do you see what I mean? And things like that. And, you know, if, if we've got the money there, if we're generous in our hearts, then the Lord will certainly show us who needs what, where, when and how. So I think yeah. that's how it'll work. Uh, can I just put out that? I mean, you're, you're saying that, rightly so, there's strict biblical criteria, as it were, right? Yeah. And that, you know, the idea of the young couple with the washing machine. I think that's great. I mean, that's yeah. the sort of thing we should be doing. I was wondering, perhaps a bit further than that, um, you see, I suppose a lot of Christians, certainly in this area, are relatively affluent, as you said, perhaps relative, you see, hmm. where it is hard to, well that's the first question that is out of interest, you do see it is a relative, you know, yeah. that's number one, yeah. and um, I was wondering just, you know, perhaps, it's not essential, but it's, it's it almost as in many of the aspects of society now, it's perhaps some form of transport, things like that. So where, where would I go do that? Mm. So would you see that as a, a need? Yeah, I would certainly, um, I mean, I can certainly foresee circumstances where, you know, sort of the law would actually say to a fellowship they need a car. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, no doubt at all. And, uh, and it's like, obviously, I mean, in the early church, they didn't need things like that. that life was so different. Yeah. I mean, the furthest you ever travelled from home was 20 miles. I mean, people never, I mean, I mean people don't realise the entire ministry of Jesus was in a kind of an area that it would take us about 15 minutes to drive across in a car today. Very small area. Because life is different today, needs have changed. Uh, certainly one area where I foresee that money is going to be needed is that we're certainly going to have people, and this has already happened, people who for whatever reason have ended up in debt. 
Now, on the proviso that they are willing to be taught how to stay out of debt, their debts can be covered. Now, this isn't going to turn into people coming up for a, 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 an easy touch. Potential scroungers won't get a look in. But, but these are all the kinds of things that in our modern society, and that with people who the law brings amongst us, these are genuine needs that sometimes can arise. And uh, certainly I foresee a time when someone, perhaps their car has broken down, and uh, sort of like it's the only way they can get here, and they honestly don't have the money to get it. I'm not talking about people who'd rather not touch their savings, but they honestly haven't the money to get their car, their car repaired. That is, is just the sort of thing that our fellowship fund can be used for. Right.